and I'd grown up seeing the effect mental illness was having on my dad, um, how it was having on our family relationships and how it had on me as a person. G'day and welcome to episode 37 of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve, and I can't believe it's the end of January. I hope you've all had a good first month of the year. This is our last episode that is really focusing on the topic of mental health. Today's story is with Caitlin McConnell. She's a grazier lawyer, and as I'll touch on a bit later, the rest of her background, she's a very busy person. Today's story focuses on her own mental health and mental illness journey. She talks about some of her thoughts and the process when she was at her lowest, as well as how she has overcome three bouts of clinical depression. If today's episode has you concerned for yourself or anyone else, you can reach out to Beyond Blue, Lifeline on 13 11 14, or the TX Hotline via their website or 04888 So I better give you a bit of Caitlin's background. She's a senior associate with Clayton Utes in Brisbane, a director of the RNA Foundation, chair of the RNA Future Directions Committee, and a non-executive director with the Future Farmers Network. On top of that, she spends her extra time, God knows where she finds it, supporting and working on the family grazing property, Cresbrook Station. She's an advocate for mental health awareness in high-performing sectors, and this chat should be pretty eye-opening. Caitlin, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thank you for having me, Ollie. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get started, your family home, and I was doing a bit of research on it. You guys have got a fair old history in Queensland. You've, your parents live in the oldest residence in Queensland, and you guys are mm-hmm. the oldest family farming business, or fa- oldest family business? Yeah. So we um, were the oldest identified family business uh, in Queensland and one of the oldest in Australia. So I am this generation of my family uh, to grow up on Crosbrook. It was settled by my great-great-great-grandfather, David McConnell, in 1841, uh, which actually he settled um, Crosbrook before Queensland was a state. So we were still the colony of New South Wales at that point. And he came out to Australia uh, as a 21-year-old from England. He landed in Sydney, actually, and bought livestock there and drove cattle and sheep up um, over the downs and found Crestbrook and, and settled there. And our family have been involved um, in not only the agricultural sector, but the establishment of healthcare and education in Queensland. So David's wife, uh, first Mrs McConnell, Mary McConnell, actually founded the Hospital for Sick Children here in Brisbane, which was the second children's hospital in Australia at that time behind the Melbourne Children's Hospital. And it is now uh, the Queensland Children's Hospital over at South Bank. So, um, yeah, various generations have contributed to various industries. And I think I'm very fortunate to not only know about those contributions, be um, very grateful for those and, and grateful for that knowledge. But I think very, very fortunate to still be living uh, in the family homestead and on the family farm where where my ancestors settled when they first came to Australia. All right. It's a heck of a history to have that you guys are tied to. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Do you feel pressure when it comes to something like that? Like that, yeah, you need to continue the farming legacy? Mm. Um, I knew this would probably be your next question. (laughs) (laughs) 
whenever whenever I talk about our family history or you know my home, um, that that is really one of the first questions that comes up. It's sort of that sense of do I have a sense of responsibility to to go back home and sense of responsibility I think is shared with any well a lot of my contemporaries who have grown up on family farming properties it's that sense of responsibility of do you need to go home um the reality is when I was growing up so I'm an only child and I was I, I did go to boarding school at the age of nine but when I was growing up I I wasn't aware of the significance of our family history uh, or our connection to Australian history uh, truth be told for me it was just it was my childhood I, I grew up on the farm you know enjoyed driving the tractor and helping out in the dairy and in truth it, I actually saw so I first went to boarding school when the in 2000 so the millennium drought was about to kick off and deregulation of the dairy industry had come in the year I went to boarding school and I as you know a, a 10 11 year old girl could actually see the effect that the drought and the deregulation of the dairy industry was having on my parents physical mental and financial well-being and conversely too uh, over the generations um, you know, it's, you don't get a sixth generation farming property or really any intergenerational farming property uh, or assets generally without some very interesting succession decisions made along the line. Uh, and there have been some challenging factors in that respect that my parents have had to deal with throughout my lifetime. So when I was young, um, I actually had no interest in going home because I could see the um, difficulties mum and dad were having, the stresses it was placing on their relationship and conversely to the effect it was having on me as a child uh, and as a teenager and the effect it was having on my mental health as well. And uh, it wasn't really, and, and so those effects I was having even before I knew of our extensive history and it wasn't really until about six or seven years ago that I, um, circumstances, came about that I had to go and spend some time on the farm uh, once I finished uni and I learned about our history and the farm itself, you realise that it is as much of a part of you as you are of it, I guess. It's, uh, it's sort of, it's, I realised that Cresbrook was, well, and is an integral part of who I am and what I do and why I do it. And it was there that I sort of, it's not so much a burden or a responsibility of wanting to take on the history, but more of a genuine interest and realising that our history is far greater than just my parents and me uh, and our immediate family. It's actually the number of people that have contacted me, particularly in recent years, who have a connection to either being born uh, or having their, their ancestors born or being worked or having, having worked at Crowsbrook knowing that our home is not only our home, it's, it's a connection to so many other people's family histories and connections to um, Queensland and Australia. And, and that's what I think less of responsibility, more and more of a desire to keep that connection going um, for the sake of a broader community. 
So long-winded answer, Ollie. But um, <laughs> no, it's, I, yeah. it's bloody fascinating, isn't it? And it's funny. Mm. I think it was Craig Herity. I had him on the podcast a while back, and he was talking about growing up in like growing up in drought years and how it actually turns you away from primary production. It's it, yeah, it's mm. really interesting when people have that experience, which then pushes you away. So I'm interested. So you like grew up on the farm. You helped out a little bit, but at school, like, what what did you want to be? I I went through various stages. Uh, at one point, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, and then maybe an intelligence officer in the RAAF. Um, and then really, it was it was probably high school. I I love numbers, and when I was a kid, I would count everything you know we'd be at the uh, mum still tells the story we'd be at the beach um and we had a particular friend of ours who wears the most amazing jewelry but sort of bangles and rings on every fingers finger and um bangles up the arm and you know we would have seen this woman at the beach and um i'll say to mum privately oh you know she she had 27 bangles on her left hand and mum's like you're a weird kid um so she'd call me count mcconnell so loved loved numbers um, I discount everything and therefore I was interested in finance, interested in potentially, you know, going to Wall Street and being a stockbroker. And law wasn't really in the, the picture for me when I first left school. It was sort of, I was good at English and I enjoyed law uh, as a subject at school, but it was more, I think, having watched, oh, I, I don't think the Wolf of Wall Street had been around by then, but um, certainly the romanticism of a life in uh, New York and as a broker really uh, fascinated me. I, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, I, um, I, I struggled at school a little bit uh, with my mental health. So, and I, you know, wasn't particularly interested in school. All I, all I was interested in was rowing uh, competitively. So I actually didn't get the OP that I needed to get either straight into finance or even into law. So I had to go and jump into an accounting degree to start off and then find my way to a dual degree of, of law and finance. And I was very lucky when I was doing my undergrad, I made a point of getting employment at law firms um, as a law clerk while I was studying and, and also did some work experience in various investment banks. Um, not only here in Brisbane, but down in Sydney as well, to get really to get an idea. I mean, law and finance is a six and a half year degree. And the last thing I wanted to do was get to the end of that six and a half years and go, well, actually, none of this is for me. I wanted to have a clear indication of where I wanted to go. So using those six and a half years, I was able to actually work my way through various firms, law and finance to figure out what kind of brain do I actually have and where do I ultimately want to end up. So, um, yeah, so coming back to what did I want to be, a stockbroker, and I'm far from it. Um, a question <laughs> on that. today, always. <laughs> yeah, a question on that. So you've, you're jumping around, a six and a half year degree is a massive commitment. Did you ever think mm. during that time you're like, shit, I don't know why on earth I'm doing this, or is it, yeah, did you second guess yourself yeah. a bit? I did, but most of it, the, the second guessing for me came from, and I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I um, really came about from my second bout of clinical depression that I've had in my life. So the first was when I was at high school 
Um, and that was born really as a result of knowing um, the difficulties mum and dad faced at home with the drought. My second bout came when I was halfway through uni and it was actually the stresses of the farm had uh, resulted in mum and dad separating for a year. And, um, you know, that's not the easiest at the best of times, but particularly when you're a 20-year-old and, and an only child as well and you're trying to figure out who you are as a young woman uh, and what you want to do with, a life, with your life, that was uh, particularly challenging. So there was a time there where I was sort of, what's the point? Um, you know, I'm not really interested in law. I'm not so much of a great financier. I don't think I'll make it as a broker. Um, and I've had a lot of friends who had gone up to the territory and done jillarooing and jackarooing. And I did start to question, um, you know, whether or not uni life was for me, but also whether or not I'd missed opportunities in terms of actually going out and experiencing life on the land. And I think that's probably where some of mine to shift Um was realising that mum and dad were separating and I'd have to, you know, split my time and and questioning about what would happen to the farm. So that kind of started to spur on, yeah, questions about what I was doing with life generally. And and this probably comes into a little bit of a heavier conversation, Ollie. Um, with my bouts of clinical depression, so there were times when I was at high school uh, when I first suffered um, mentally, that um, there were times because of the effect I could see the drought was having on mum and dad and their relationship and because of the issues associated with our family succession planning um, over generations, there are actually times when I thought that mum and dad would be better off without me around. Uh, and so that was as a teenager and I was very fortunate to mum notice the change in my behaviour and was very quick to get me some support at that time. But I actually, and I, you know, I got treatment and I, I um, got sort of a toolbox of tricks that I could help me with, help me with um, going through that. And then I fell into that same sort of mentality um, in 2010 when I was going through my second bout. So seeing the difficulties mum and dad were having and then not knowing who I was as a person or really where I wanted to be, um, I fell into that way of thinking again and going, you know, it's, um, is it all worth it? Um, it seems that my existence is almost making my parents' lives harder than it should be. So um, there were some pretty dark days there. But again, fortunate to sort of... Um, dig into some of the, the war chest of tools that I had to get through that period. Yeah, I was going to say, like, on that, how – so the second time around, obviously the first time your mum grabbed you. Yep. And Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023 Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported? Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low-cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, 
Mapping World Vegetable Trade, or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. And got you through, and, or got you the help that you needed to get through that. But then mm. the second time, like, how did you go approaching that? Like, was it just that you were extremely honest with yourself? Yeah, I think it was actually, I think the second time around, it was actually my dad. So dad, when I was at school, dad suffered from mental illness and he he got to a point where he was actually about 60 kilos when I was a year 11 student. So I was, as a 16-year-old girl, I was heavier than my dad. Um, so that was a that was a struggle and to see him battle mentally. Um, and we'd always grown up with him. I don't think really being aware of the effect that his decisions or challenges or difficulties, the, the effect that it had on me and mum at home, um, sort of bringing the issues from farm into the house. And so in 2010, um, when mum and dad separated, mum had really, she'd realised that that was an opportunity for her to take care of herself, uh, which she needed to do. And it was actually dad of his own volition seeking help in his own right and sort of um, counselling services that he could then, it was time that, he had recognised in my lifetime that I was going through difficulties. So that was a very powerful moment to actually have um, Dad, who I'd seen struggle forever to not comprehend really what was going on in his life, to then ask me if I'm okay and actually to tell me that, um, you know, that he did want me around. <laughs> um, so I think that was that was pretty powerful um yeah I think that yeah I'd say that was it Ollie it was it was it was dad yeah that time around shit like yeah you say it's heavy but far out and then oh oh, yeah going from that and Mm. obviously the the dark times how how did you come out of it and then I suppose how did you keep the the wheels in motion to yeah, like then going mm. to a high-performing industry like like law, it's not exactly just a walk in the park where you've got a really nice uh, work-life balance. So I want to say sort of the knocks didn't stop coming um, after 2010. It, so I graduated uh, from my dual degree in 2013 and I, I graduated. I, I didn't have a great um, end of uni result. You know, I, I got my pieces of paper and I'd had six years work experience. I'd actually, I did a summer school at Oxford University. Um, I went over there for a month to do a course in international business law before I graduated and I'd done a lot of extracurricular activities. And I graduated at a time when it was off the back of the GFC and it was actually the worst time in history, well, my, well, our living history, um, for law graduates to be trying to find a job in the industry. So here I was after six and a half years of uni, uh, six and a half years of work experience, a stint at Oxford, um, and I was facing unemployment. So I said, well, you know, um, you can just sort of fall in a heap and 
game over or actually use the resources that are around you. And because I was so aware of, well, at that point, I you know, hadn't spent time at the farm and, you know, was really wondering if I'd missed an opportunity. I thought, you know what, now's a great, now's a great time as any to go home. And I worked with dad quite closely. I got to know Cresbrook and, and that's the year that I really learned about our family history and I was sort of aghast, at, you know, that mum and dad hadn't shared it with me as, as much as they, you know, I don't say as they should have, I guess. I really used that year to also get to know my local community again. So I'd been at boarding school from the age of 10. I then went straight to uni. And whilst I had some contemporaries in the valley and we had family friends, I hadn't really been involved um, as much as I would have liked. So I took that opportunity to reacquaint myself with the community and, and, people now who I um, have a great relationship with and I adore and they, they do exceptional things in the area. And it was really that year that made me realise that I had to be involved in agriculture and my home and, and by extension our community um, going forward. During that time, I was lucky enough then to uh, a federal court judge actually sort of heard about what I was doing through the grapevine. I was also doing work experience and I was offered a job at the federal court as a judge's associate in starting in 2015, which was an exceptional experience and used that year to reacquaint myself with the um, RNA, so the Royal Queensland Show. And I was fortunate enough to become a member of the Future Directions Committee that year enabling me to be involved in the agricultural sector whilst I also continued with my law, knowing full well that, and I should probably premise the fact that why I pushed so hard with law and finance in the first instance and, you know, didn't take the Jillarooing job up north or didn't explore other avenues was because I saw how financially difficult it was to be on our family property and we, we only have a small property. So I knew very early on and mum and dad would always say you know don't be a farmer um go off and do something that will actually be financially viable um so I knew that anything that I wanted to do in ag then or in the future I would need outside skills or an outside source of income to do it on my own and because I am an only child um so law was was the path to do that and then just try and pick opportunities extracurricular wise and start to pick up roles on the farm with dad to get my way back into the industry that I'm actually, I mean, it's not that I'm not passionate about law. I I love my job and I I certainly love being a litigator. Nothing like a good dispute to get me up in the morning. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) but, um, I'm I'm fiercely passionate about my home and the agricultural sector and, and this is the path that I realised early on was the only way that I was going to get back to the land um, and I think make a difference in that instance. Yeah. Can I ask on that? So you joined the RNA and was that, was it quite a, a nearly like a strategic piece, but you want to steer that path towards being an agri-lawyer. So were these volunteer mm. roles, was that a way of going, okay, one, building a network, two, getting some industry exposure plus giving back with the skills you've mm-hmm. got? Was it, was it a straight, uh, strategic decision or was it just the way things worked out? 
I think it's, it's, I guess it's become strategic by default. Um, more strategic in the sense that I just wanted to be doing things outside of work that I was genuinely interested in. And the RNA, uh, in the first instance was an opportunity to allow me to do that. Every, every decision you make, I think professionally and even personally, you've got to choose whether or not it's something you want to spend your time on and particularly in voluntary roles, you've got to be passionate about it. And I think that's what it is at the end of the day. Yes, there's strategy there in terms of wanting my work life and my personal interests to align. Um, but the reality is I make time for the things that I'm genuinely interested in. So um, I think that's how it plays out. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think they've, I've, I'm, Again, not a balance, a harmony. Um, I think I'm, I'm managing to harmonize that as, as best I can to, yes, to make it not only beneficial for me, but it's got to be, um, benefiting those around me and benefiting those people that I want to support. Yeah. Yeah. And so what with the various groups, Future Farmers Network, RNA, what, what has it been or what's been, I suppose, a standout? piece of being involved in organizations like that and I suppose why could you or would you recommend it as something that other people should look at I think first and foremost really any community organization not just in ag um, but any voluntary organization it's that connection with like-minded individuals so you are all there for a genuine passion or a genuine interest and arguably you're all working towards a common goal voluntarily. So you're already very like-minded. I think the greatest thing that I've got out of being involved in the FFN and RNA is meeting men and women like me from all ages who are genuinely passionate about agriculture and supporting those in the industry who um, either don't have access to certain opportunities or don't know where to find opportunities. Yeah. It seems like, well, advocacy and knowing you, like advocacy is a massive part of it, whether it be through opportunities in agriculture or mental health. And one thing that, well, I suppose surprised me, I don't know, like it, it takes a lot of courage to speak openly about the mental health piece, but I saw you, the article that you guys shared and Clayton Newts had signed up as a, oh, I'm going to get it wrong here, one of the, like, whatever it was. <laughs> the corporate, like, corporate Mental Health Alliance Australia. That's it. Yeah, it's, surely <laughs> it would have been an acronym, wouldn't it? C- C-M-H-A-A. Who would have thought the corporates would create an acronym? <laughs> Love a good acronym. <laughs> but, yeah, advocating on that front, like, yeah, incredibly courageous but also – very beneficial because it's one of those things that unless there's people like yourself willing to step up and talk about these things, well then people will keep suffering in silence and they won't have or or feel that they've got the backing and support of whether it be their workplace or their friends or whoever it might be to go and get that help. Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, you're right, Ollie, the, the more people who, and it, it, it takes a lot of guts. It's I've I'm fortunate. Say I'm fortunate. I I have pushed myself into a position to talk about my experiences with mental illness 
And who supported? I was going to say, who supported you to take that first step? To get help or to talk about it? No, no, to talk about it. I took it upon myself. So, uh, because when I was at my lowest, yes, I had the support of my mum and dad, but there would there was this stigma associated with having mental illness, um, particularly you know, so at boarding school. None of the boarders and none of my boarding mistresses they just thought I was a bit of a trouble kid. I say off on the back, I'm still navigating my re- most recent bout of. Um, clinical depression and it was really this time that I kind of thought well enough is enough I have suffered in violence for my really half my life with clinical depression and if I if I don't speak no one else will and I took sort of the, the bit of a bit of strength that I had left. Um, well, I mean, it's very difficult suffering uh, a mental illness. You, I am a high achiever. So I go back to the beginning. So I, I'm, I'm a high achiever. I set myself some pretty tough goals. Um, and the nature of being a litigator, and I think the nature of also being a farmer, is we are of the mentality that we we are working at such a high pressured level uh, consistently that we are already predisposed to the very traits that link to mental illness. And I'd grown up seeing the effect mental illness was having on my dad, um, how it was having on our family relationships and how it had on me as a person. And I, you know, I said, well, this mental illness is so common um we all we all have you know we all have a brain we all have mental capacity um we are all affected in part somehow by some sort form of medical um medical mental ailment um and even if even if you're not it's making sure that you are mentally healthy in order to carry on your day-to-day functioning and um, the reason why I decided to speak up is because I was still functioning at a, an optimal level. I, I was working here, I probably, sorry, I was, end of, end of 2018, um, I was sitting at my desk, so I'm here, I'm a litigator, and I was actually, unbeknownst to me, but I was having an anxiety attack at my desk. And I just wasn't functioning. And my boss um, here at Clayton Newt, I have a very good relationship with him and he knows about all my extracurricular commitments and, and that sort of thing and sort of came in and closed the door and just said, are you, are you okay? I was like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm fine. What, like, what do you need? What can I do? And he's like, no, no, no. It's nothing to do with your work. Your work is exceptional. Um, there's just something... There's something off about you. There's, you haven't been yourself for over a year and it's getting worse. And I can see you've just been sitting, staring at your computer, doing nothing for really 45 minutes. Um, and it was at that point I said, I, yeah, I'm not okay. And I actually, I 
started crying. Um, I've cried many a time <laughs> in front of him, um, uh, which is a wonderful thing to feel so comfortable uh, in front of a boss yeah. to be able to, to have that kind of relationship. But he just said, go home, um, go home, look after yourself. And it, it wasn't until, so I really sort of, sort of credit him to making me realise that I was at my, it was the lowest I'd ever been. I wasn't having suicidal thoughts like I was um, back when um, I was in my teens and, and early 20s, but I wasn't functioning. I I was struggling to get out of bed. I um, would basically sit in the shower and cry every evening, not knowing why, and I was exhausted. And it was my boss that helped me realise, and then by extension my family, that I was in, I was actually in a, personal relationship that um I on now reflection was had elements of sort of emotionally abusive and it was that relationship that had triggered my um questioning my self-worth my goal sort of the very the very tools that I've used to keep me going in terms of you have the checklists you have the goals the aspirations um you have the checks in place to keep yourself going when you have a mental illness. Each of those things had been slowly sort of chipped away over a period of time. So I was sort of almost a shell of who I who I was as who I or who I am as a person. And it was because of his intervention um, that I made a change in my life and I went and got help for the third time because um, until then I was had just been ignoring it. And it was at that time that really Clayton Youth as a corporate entity um, really started recognising the need to support employees when it comes to mental health and wellness. And that comes off the back of, again, as I was saying, we are such a high-functioning uh, industry and mentally draining. I mean, with what we're doing each and every day is, you know, it's, it's mentally straining. And you, and particularly as a litigator, your job is to solve other people's problems. So you tend to take on uh, a burden as such, knowing that any decision that you make as a litigator will affect other people's lives. And there was a high, much like in the bush, high instances of suicide in the legal profession and it was at that point fortunately that um, yeah, Clayton Newts and a number of other firms recognised that it is important to support everyone and they joined the Alliance even before they joined the Alliance there was a recognition that mental health and wellness was imperative um, it was in joining the Alliance which was launched last year um, it was a work in progress for a few years before that that um, we actually now have a full-time mental health and wellness national manager. She's a trained psychologist and she helps to inform the firm and um, the ways in which it can support individuals. And I I knew that it was sort of fortuitous, I guess, the time that I was, my boss had told me that I, wasn't being myself and I and he he encouraged me to go and get help which I did um was about the same time that the firm really started championing this initiative and I thought well if it wasn't for 
particularly during my third bout of depression, um, if it wasn't for Clayton Youth and if it wasn't for the working relationships I had with my colleagues here at the firm and the trust that I had with my boss, um, I it could have been a very different story. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and I so I wanted I wanted to use my experiences to help encourage my colleagues to seek help or even ask the question if they're okay or if our colleagues are okay and just start the conversation. And um, that's I, um, yeah. Sorry to cut you off. It leads me to no, a no. question, which I don't know if you've ever been asked it, but um, obviously your boss was so instrumental to you mm. the third time around. What what kind of boss or what kind of behaviours do you think you'd implement when you get yourself to that position of, yeah, managing teams and people? Um, listening. You've got to listen. One of – I think listen and getting to know the people that are in your team over and above what attributes or skills they can bring to your business. You've got to know what makes them tick as an individual, what their passions are, and then asking them personal questions. Do they have a family? What do they do on the weekend? Um, because it's, it's those, it's that interest from a boss or even just a general human being perspective, you know, keeping an eye on your mates, knowing, knowing what their interests are, what their passions are. It's when, it, it, in my case, it wasn't my caliber of work that started slipping. It was everything else in my life. But because my boss knew about everything else in my life, he could see that there were changes in my person, that he could pull me up on that. So I think as a boss and as a person generally, you've just got to know the people that you're surrounded by in any of the organizations that I'm involved in any of the my colleagues that I work here and it's not so much even being a boss um you know you don't have to wait until you're in that leadership position to ask those questions or to have that sort of interest in the people around you I no word of a lie with that very boss (laughs) um that supported me a couple of years ago and continues to support me I asked him the tough questions earlier this week I was like how are you going? What are your goals for the year? You know, just so it, it works both ways. Channels of communication, it doesn't matter what level you are. You've just got to know the people that are around you. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, so I suppose following on from that too, and obviously you're, you're saying before you've got a high-pressure work environment and farming, like there's similarities between them where it is high-pressure and it seems that you use farming as a bit of an outlet as well. But what are those outlets for you and how do you manage it yourself? I have a lot of lists, Ollie. <laughs> I have a lot of diary entries. Um, I, yeah, you're right. The correlation between your and ag isn't actually uh, such a step for me um, as others might think. So it's interesting. The skills that I think I've picked up particularly in reading livestock in the paddock uh, and working with my old man as any 
any any uh, child who's been in the cattle yards with a parent um, can learn. Uh, there's there's aspects of mediation and patience and reading people that you you are skills you don't get anywhere else other than a cattle yard. Um, and I've been able to implement them, I think, in being able to read people as a litigator. And then vice versa, using my mediation skills that I've learned as a lawyer um, to probably bring my old man around to a few decisions in at home. In terms of how I link the two and sort of what my outlets are, I get, and I know it's not downtime, it's, it's sort of additional work, but I get a lot of satisfaction in spending my spare time in contributing to the organisations that I'm involved in, so the FFN, the RNA and my local community from there it's home is my outlet and I, I know that a lot of my city contemporaries sort of tend to s- struggle with this concept but I get no greater satisfaction than going home on a weekend and working in the garden I've just started building quite a large or extensive vegetable garden at the farm, which we haven't had for decades. I love working with my cattle. They have such uh, incredible personalities and, and learning about nutrition. So I'm doing a lot, particularly this year. That's one of my goals to learn more about the relationship between not only gut health and mental health, but also how looking at the soil science and looking at how we grow our food and then also how we raise our livestock and then what effect that has up the chain uh, when it comes to using it um, now cooking and, and eating day to day. So, um, yeah, reading is an outlet for me. Gardening, I love my roses. I've put in a big rose garden at home. So I think the reality is it's ag for me is the outlet from a corporate world because in the corporate world you do tend to get lost um, in your computer screen and you get lost from reality, I think, and um, going home and and building a fence or working in the yard or just digging in the dirt in the garden brings me back to nature and brings me back really to what what is necessary in life. It makes you think about what you actually need in life to survive and that's all and that's for me all I'd need is a patch of dirt um my beautiful family and my friends around me and that's it's it's very simple so I think reminding myself weekly weekends (laughs) that um to get get back in touch with nature and that's my outlet yeah lovely well Mm. I suppose uh, on that note, we better let you get out to the farm for the weekend. (laughs) Yes. Thank you very much for joining us and sharing your story, Caitlin. It's good. My pleasure, Ollie. Thank you very much. And thank you for everything that you're doing for um, raising the awareness of of mental illness, not only in the bush, but generally. It's it's a fantastic thing and, and very important. Thank you. Well, that's it for another week of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thanks again for tuning in and joining us. Over the next few weeks, we've got some interesting characters joining us. We've got Catherine Marriott, Terry McCosker, Heidi Wright, and Ollie Thorne. 
As we build out the year, we're also going to focus on some specific topics. One that I really want to cover is live export. It's an area that a lot of people don't want to talk about, but I have a genuine interest in finding out more, and I hope you do too. If you've got any suggested topics, areas, people you want us to talk to, get in touch with us or reach out to me on, on email, ollie at humansofagriculture.com, on our Instagram at humansofagriculture with an underscore. Any recommendations, big or small, hit us up and let's see what we can do. Look after yourselves, everyone. Stay safe, stay sane, and make sure you check in on yourself and on your friends.